Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Thursday, and I actually have a packed podcast schedule because of a number of reasons. And so I'm going to attend to the first one right now. It so happens that uh, Batsal Stavansky, who's our big friend in this podcast, and the Ganazim uh, Auction House are making another one of those uh, fancy schmancy auctions online for extremely rare and unbelievably valuable uh, Jewish texts and books. And uh, if you're interested in this at all, you just go online and type in Ganazim, it's with a Y, so it's G-E-N-A-Z-Y-M, and you'll find the site. And they're making a, uh, what do you call it, a uh, auction uh, live in Yerushalayim, but it's online to everybody, on um, Tes So, you know, in other words, uh, the 11th of September, the same day at 9-11, <laughs> okay, not the crashing into the building, but they're making one of those uh, that they do from time to time, these rarest farm. And we were talking about, he sent me a catalog, and you can get a catalog too if you're interested, but the catalog's online. So just type in Genazim. Again, it's with a Y. So it's G-E-N-A-Z-Y-N, not I-M-Y-M. And uh, I was looking through it, and they have unbelievable stuff. And I made up with them to talk about um, a remarkable thing that they're selling. If you're a player, and uh, <laughs> these are tens of thousands of dollars, and they have the original printing of the Sefer Ikrim. So I'm going to talk about the Sefer Ikrim, Yosef Albo. They have the original one from um, 1486. Uh, anything that's printed before, printing us before the 1500s, they call in Canabula. It's extremely um, valuable. And this copy is uh, remarkable for a number of reasons. Um, so let me get into this. I don't know how many people are into the safe rick, and probably not a lot, but I could be wrong, simply because it had an interesting... Me, myself, and I read it long ago, and I wasn't turned on by it. However, in the history of Claudius Roe, it's one of the most popular books ever published. It was published and republished and republished. And it's a book of religious philosophy, Ashkaf, if you prefer, but it has a very specific character uh, because of the time in which the author lived. So the person we're talking about is named Yosef Albel. Yosef Albel. And he was a Sephardi living in the last century of the Spanish Jews before 1492. So... He's born around in 1380 and died in 1444. That gives you the idea of the years we're talking about. Which means that he had the misfortune, if you want to call it that, of living in Spain in like the worst times. Because if he's born in 1380, that means he's 11 years old in 1391. And as I've said many times on these podcasts, 1391, not 1492, but 1391, was the year of the great wave of pogroms that hit the Spanish Jewry. And then inaugurated 30 years of hell. From 1391 to 1421, um, things were bad news for the Jews in Spain. They were subjected to pogroms, to religious persecutions, and unbelievable pressure to convert, usually led by Mishamadim. And it went on and off uh, pretty strong for 30 years. And therefore, 50% of the Jews of Spain converted. That's what they say. So if you imagine that there was something like, I don't know, a quarter of a million Jews. I'm giving figures that they usually say. Half a million, quarter million, 50% of them converted. <clears throat> um, I've spoken about this on other occasions when you get to the Rivosh, the Tashbates and people like that lived at that time. Chazay Kreskis. But it was a tough time to live. This is the world in which our hero, Rabbi Yosef Albo, lived. And to come up simply as a from Jew... And to become a Talmud Chacham of any degree during that time was very difficult because of the external circumstances. And he was born in northern Aragon, and he lived most of his life over there in the northeastern part of Spain. 
And later he moved to Castile. The, 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 those things don't matter. And he lived at the time, as I say before, from 11 years old, in which the Catholic Church was a bummer and a half, bummer gadol. And um, the big guy in his time, let, let me put it this way. Had he lived, you know, born not in 1380, let's say he was born in 1370, then his teenage years would have been with a lot of famous yeshivas and gadolim and that sort of thing. Because you had that in Spain. This is the time of the Ron, a little after, Chazdekreskis. There were other places, Mikomas Atoro. But because he's born 10 years later, all those yeshivas, by and large, were destroyed. And many of the rabbis and yeshiva guys were forcibly converted. Even the Rivash had to go through that for a little bit. And it's very hard to be from, let alone to be, to acquire knowledge. In spite of that, there were, you know, wherever they could, they did. Including our hero, Yosef Albo. So it's a tragic life and a, and, and a difficult one. And you got to give him credit for sort of rising to the occasion. Because... Somehow or other, he hooked up with Chazdei Kreskes, who was the big rabbi and philosopher in that part of the world. Chazdei Kreskes was connected with the royal court, and as a result, he himself personally, not his kids, was able to escape the pogroms and the persecution. He himself was a gigantic Talmud Chacham. He wrote this famous book to sort of slug up the Rambam's Marnavuchim, you might say, to attack Aristotle altogether called the Orashem, the Light of the Lord, which is, and I did it with the Chavrusas, it's very hard. At least I found it hard. It's in Hebrew, but a very weird Hebrew. Sentences are, are, are written very weird as far as I'm concerned. But anyway, he's considered by those who know, and I'm not a philosophy professor, I know history, I don't know philosophy, though I went through this stuff, and to be the greatest of the uh, medieval philosophers. So, you know, some people might say, no, the Rambam is. But the fact you're up there in that league is the Rambam or Chazdei Kresses shows what I'm talking about. He also was a very big Talmud Chacham, but he didn't have Mazel in the following sense. Most people listening to this podcast have never heard of him, or if they did, didn't know anything about Chazdei Kreskes, who was a Talmud of the Ron, and, the, and he was open. But um, one of the reasons is because he never got to finish his main project, which would have put him in there in the yeshiva world. He was a big bar plucked of the Rambam, and I mean that in a respectful way. You know, he notice he disagreed with the shittas of the Rambam. That's fine, um, in a respectful way. And he also was from an aristocratic Jewish family and all that. And he, Chazay Kresses, I'm talking about. So he wrote a book to slug up the Murnavuchim, that's the Or Hashem, which is published and is famous, but obscure. No, it was difficult, let me put it that way. But he was in the process of writing a Mishnah Torah against the Ramah's Mishnah Torah, so to speak. You know what I'm saying? Now, let's write a halacha sefer in which he would explain why he slugs up the Rambam fairly often as he felt. That never happened. You know, he died before it could get written. I don't know exactly. And so, I mean, he had a yeshiva of his own. Since it didn't happen, so he's just not known in the firm world, by and large. Because they only know of the Gemar, 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 Halacha, Halacha, Halacha. And his stuff never got out there. But he was a Bar Hachi. And to give you an idea of what I mean when he's a Bar Hachi, to use language that will be understood by the Yeshiva people listening in, I'll simply say that Chazde Kreskus was the Rebbe of the Nemuki Yosef. So that gives you an idea. Now, having said that, our hero, Yosef Alba, also learned by him. Um, and so he was a Tamachachim. I don't know what kind of, but he was a Talmud Chacham. And he later on became like, what would you, I guess you would call rabbi with small towns. This place, that place, the other place. But it's also true that since Judaism was under a constant attack in a way that is not true today, I would say the period I'm talking about, 1391 to 1421, was probably a time when Judaism, as we understand it, the rabbinic Talmudic Judaism, was under the most concentrated attacks, specifically targeted attacks, ever. Usually Judaism goes by pretty much ignored, but at that time there was a full court press by the Catholics in in, in Spain, 
to exterminate Judaism, not by a Hitler way, but to force all the Jews to convert. And therefore crush Judaism as what they would see a heresy, and that way they would triumph. That's how they saw it. Now, it didn't happen. It, they, it happened 50%, which is bad enough, but it didn't happen that they broke all the Jews. They broke half of them. So our heroes from the half that they did not break. I'm just trying to tell you that the times he lived in were very harsh. Very harsh. Now, in addition to that, the there's always been a big difference <clears throat> between Judaism and Christianity. There are many, but here's one. And that is that Judaism is basically halachocentric, and Christianity, if I can use this term, is agatha-centric. By then, the meanings of theology, nature of God, um, you know, what we would call agatha questions, heaven and hell, reward and punishment, you know, that's the center of the Catholics. That's what their Iker stuff is focused on. The halacha side, they don't believe in, in the law and carrying out the laws of the Old Testament. Not most of them, anyway. And so it's much less important. Therefore, a Catholic Talmud Chacham would be somebody who's gone through all the philosophical, theological arguments to prove the truths of Christianity and of Catholicism. Obviously, it involves having to read the Old Testament in a certain way. And that's what they their, their expertise is in. By the Jews, it's the opposite. The Agatha is something you never take too seriously. The halacha you take very seriously. All the people learning yeshiva, they're trying to understand not the Agatha parts of the Gemara. That people, the Chavruz, read pretty fast. I'll bet you nowadays, it comes to the Agatha, they just probably read it with the art school. You know? Just to act with it. Um, it's a fascinating area, but it ain't the Iker. Dicker is the alumnus of the Gemara itself, which ultimately results in halacha. So, a Catholic would not be well-versed in, just to give an example, Parshish Mishpatim with the with the, with the Evid Kanani and the, 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 the Shomrim and the Baba Kama stuff, the Baba Metziah stuff. Whereas, typical guy in Yeshiva or Rabbi or Tamil Chacham typically wouldn't be interested it wouldn't be a Bucky in uh, you know an Yaakov business. You see? Now, of course, there are Gedom that are, but I'm talking about the regular, usually. Right? If a guy says, I know Yavamas, if a guy says, I know Ksubis, he's talking about the halachic parts. Parts that have to do with Din. Much less so the Agatha stuff. Now, of course, in the history of Kali's role, we've had our people who are preoccupied with Agatha, the morale comes to mind, and so forth. You know, Ralph Cook, uh, in his own way. But it's the atypical, okay? Just keep that in mind. Now, the thing is like this. If you're from and you live in a from world, you can get away with that. Most famous Gedol never had to engage in theological debates. The Jews never were into that, even in time of the Gemara. And because in order to do it well, listen, when I'm, listen closely to what I'm about to tell you. In order to do it well, if I had to debate, let's say, for example, with a Christian, I'd first have to perfect my knowledge of the New Testament so I could go on the offensive against them. If I went to a Muslim, I would debate with a Muslim, I would have to perfect my knowledge of the Koran and that sort of thing. And most people don't do that. So it always put the Jews at a certain disadvantage, and they were never looking to make vikuchim, as they call debates. But from time to disputations... From time to time, these were forced on the Jews. And among the famous examples of this, among the many, the famous examples of this, which are actually, if you, if this is a subject that interests you, you just go online or something like that and get the old Otsar Bikukin that was put together by uh, Eisenstein. And um, he collects all this material for somebody's interest, and he wrote this in 1920, around then, and I'll bet you I'm pulling out my copy right now, he'll probably have the thing from Albo, yeah, exactly, I'll talk about it a little, in a little, a little while. Now, as I said before, the, uh, the, how should I put it, the circumstances were such that 
when the Catholic Church was ruling the roost, I would say in the 1200s, 1300s, and 1400s, so from time to time they would compel a, uh, a vikuach. We are all familiar with the Ramban versus Pablo Christiani because, among other reasons, the Ramban wrote an account of it. He himself wrote it. And the Ramban was an unusual guy. I mean, you know, he was a Godel Ador. He really was. And he happened to be a, the type of Godel Ador, if you know who the Ramban is, who was equally interested in Halach and Agadatah. That, that's just who he was. You understand? He was equally interested in both. He's not a Maimonidean at all. But he happened to be interested, maybe because he lived in a Catholic town, I don't know. He was interested in that stuff. Uh, a lot of other, I mean, like the, the Ritva, people like, I don't think they were. Now, um, in the time of the Ramban, when he was compelled to make the debate, was in 1263, whatever it was, in Barcelona, in front of the king of Aragon. So the situation of Jews was precarious but decent and very famous that the king of Aragon said to Ramban that you could, you have freedom of speech, you can say whatever you want. I'm trusting you, he said, not to shoot your mouth off against Jesus and get everybody angry. Use common sense because I know you're a person with common sense. But you can say whatever you want. And most of the time in the debate of Ramban, he kept his mouth shut Except once or twice, he couldn't help it, and he tore into Christianity and so forth, so and so forth. I have discussed this in the past, and I'm not going to hazard it over. Now I'm going to contrast that case, which was, if I can call it, the good debate, and it wasn't good. After two, three days, Ramban said, "Let's shut this down. The crowds are getting antsy. It's going to be riots, pogroms. It's not going to go anywhere." And the king even said, "You're right. I'm shutting this down," and he closed that debate. And if Ramban is to hung the truth, the king said to him, I've never heard the wrong position defended as well <laughs> as I heard Judaism defended by you. I know it's wrong, but I have to say you did a good job. If that's what the king said, that shows you the time and place. And now I'm going to contrast this with the great event in the life of our hero, um, Yosef Albo, because when he was... Uh, I guess 30 years old, 33. So this is in the middle of that bad 30 years, between 1391 and 1421. I'm talking about the years 1413, 1414. I hope this isn't confusing you, but I can't help it, my friends. Dates matter. In the middle of all that junk, uh, the king of Aragon, who's a jerk compared to the other guy, in Ramban's time, Fernando I, and the super Mamzer Pope, Benedict XIII, who they call an anti-pope, because at that time there was a machlokas who should be the pope within the Catholic Church, and that guy was in Avignon, and I don't want to go through all that. If you're really interested, you can just Google the Great Schism, and you'll see half of Europe believed the one guy was a pope, the other half of Europe believed the other guy was a pope. So this guy, Benedict XIII, who was Spanish, um, thought that he will gain more creds as a pope by screwing the Jews. And he uh, was approached, again, just in the middle of those bad 30 years, by one of the leading Mushamadim, uh, Yeshua Lorki, or called Geronimo de Santa Fe. He was a Jew who eventually took a Gaisha name, Geronimo de Santa Fe, Geronimo the Sacred Faith. With the Jews, of course, Megadev, Mem Gimeldal Pei, he's a Megadev, Maestro Geronimo de Santa Fe. And this guy led the, he was the spearhead of the attacks on the Jews, because he was, Meshomet said he wanted everybody else to, and he caused tens of thousands of Jews to convert. That's not an exaggeration on my part. Tens of thousands of Jews, this was a period, you have no idea unless you read up on this. You know, he would go into synagogues when Shabbos, with a safe return on one hand and a big crucifix on the other hand. They had to listen to his speeches. It was crazy. And if the Jews didn't agree, sometimes there'd be a massacre. He'll be killed. Tens of thousands converted. So in the midst of all this, the Jews were really up the creek. They really screwed. And the Pope was persuaded by this guy to make another vikuach. 
Instead of public Christianity, be this guy, the Megadif. And he said, I'm not going to be a nice guy like happened 100 years ago with public Christianity, who also was a Mishuan, but I'm going to fight him, you know, tooth and nail and play dirty. And he did. And the Pope agreed and presided over that, and the Jews were compelled to send delegation representatives to have a theological debate over the truths of Judaism. Not the truths of Christianity. That's taken for granted. But the same thing that happened with the Ramban's debate, which is, I want to prove, I want you Jews to be able, I'm going to force you to concede that from Jewish sources itself, from the Gemara, the Midrashim, and all the rest of it, you see the truths of Jesus. And you can't deny it. The Jews didn't want to do it, but they were forced to. And so they send a delegation of scholars, not on the level of Ramban. I mean, nobody is, right? You know, it wasn't the leading Talmudist of the generation, but they sent Jews who had theological knowledge, I would say. One of them was Profi Adurin, the uh, who, who wrote the Ephodi. And one of them, there was another guy, Banastruk. I would say B-level scholars, but again, nobody's a Ramban. It's not fair. Uh, and our hero, Yosef Alba, was one of those. He was a guy who's like 33 years old. He has to go to Tortosa, all the way up in northeastern Spain. The Pope was there. It was held like in a in, like in a stadium or something like that. It's a mob of Christians. They're saying, kill the Jews, carry on. And under these conditions, you're supposed to debate. And not like the Ramban, that you have freedom of speech. You do not have freedom of speech. You have to answer the, the questions and respond. You can't tie it back. And this is called the Disputation of Tortosa. It's a terrible contrast with the Disputation of Barcelona that the Ramban participated in. Because in the Rambans, you see that he was able, at least the way he writes it, the Catholics have a different version, but the way he writes it, he busted the other guy. Here the conditions were much worse. And the terror was much worse, and the violence was much worse. And so it was really terrible. And there was a debate that the Jews could not shut down. And it went on for about two years. Do you hear what I'm saying? From February 1413 to like December 1414. Son, imagine that. And everything was a situation where you are the pitcher, you the Catholics are the pitcher, and I'm the Jewish guy, I have to hit the ball each time. I don't have a, ch- I don't have a chance to, to pitch the ball to you. you. You Only you can pitch the ball to me. If I strike out, I strike out, or something like that. And so I'm on the defensive. And it was pretty doggone bad. And so you had, so Geronimo de Santa Fe basically said, we're going to pick up where the Ramban left off. And we're going to prove from different Gemaras and Drushim that Jesus really existed and he's the Messiah and all that kind of business. And he would throw at them, like Pablo Christianity did to Ramban. This I got it to here, that I got it there, something from the Pesikta, from the Medishra, but you know, that kind of way. And that's what I mean by pitching the ball. And every time the Jew can't answer, well, it's all we want. You see? I would even go so far as to say that... Um, all the Jews could say, by the way, is you're misinterpreting it. Or we don't believe in the Agatha is binding the way the Ramban did, in which he said, no, you have to, it's your holy book. And you had a reprise of what happened with the uh, Ramban, except not what the advantageous con- uh, conditions that the Ramban operated under. Not that they were so hot either. So it was Ace Sarliako Godoma Od. That's what it was. So I, don't, I feel sorry for the Jewish guys that had to participate in all this. And... Um, the Magad of Geronimo de Santa Fe had a book that he could use. He didn't have to do any research because a Catholic priest in the 1200s named Raymond Martini had, I think I've talked about this before, wrote a book in which he compiled. He went through whole shots, Poskin, Bible, Yushalmi, Mechilta, Sifra, Sifri, Medrash, this, that, and the other. It was a real schmo. And he copying into Latin um, anything that w- that could be used against Judaism in a debate. It was any Chazal, whole Shas, Torah Shavab had the widest interpretation of it, even Rajpas, things like that. And he compiled it for the purpose of screwing Judaism, or as he called it, Pugia Fidei, the dagger of faith. With these quotations, 
I'm going to enable any missionary to go and plunge a dagger into the heart of Judaism. And that's exactly what was happening in this debate. The Jews could only respond, the guy's a forger, I don't, how do you know he got this right? That's not a book to quote from. And show us the sources out of which he got it. Show us the original and then we'll discuss it. Which, of course, the guy couldn't do. So they say he's a forger. Now, by the way, it's not true. He wasn't a forger. As far as I understand it, the Pugia Fideh was actually pretty accurate. But nevertheless, these are the kind of level of arguments he had at that time. And, you know, it was not a question of how do you prove God exists. This is talk about the Mashiach. Uh, whether Yeshua is identical with the Mashiach. The Jews are always saying, there's no Messianic era. We haven't, you know, we haven't reached a time when Kali Yisrael returns there. It's Israel rebuild the base of Migash. Lo the lion will lie down with the lamb and all that. And the Christian guy said, no, that's all to be interpreted, you know, spiritually, that Jesus is coming and whoever believes in him is saved. And therefore the personal Yeshua and the fact get to heaven, that's the meaning of the Messianic prophecies. This is the problem. How do you prove one way or another? This, none of this stuff is empirically verifiable. The Jews keep saying, the Mashiach, even though you use that term, is not a god. You say Jesus is a god, and they, you know, the Catholic guy tried to crush that. And every time they said something, the crowd screamed at the Jews. The Pope said, let's just do this in writing. And so the, the, the Christians submitted their memorandum. The Jews had to do a counter-memorandum and vice versa. It was a terrible time. And the Jews said, we want to go home already. And the Pope wouldn't let them. So you get the idea. And therefore, there was a two-year debate over Ikrim. You get it? Basic principles of theology and belief. What do you mean when you talk about the Mashiach? How do you define God? How do you do become Lamashal? We say, but if you're a Christian, you say, Jesus was God in some fashion. Therefore, Yeshel Guf, if he wants. You know, things like that. Okay, and it's famous that the uh, Albo. You can see, by the way, there is a Jewish record of this, not a good one, but it's a Jewish record of this, and it's called the Bikuch and Tartosa, which the Jews published, I think. And um, what do you call Bikuch Achmi Tartosa? It's not very long, and if you get it in the Otsu Bikuchin. You know, you can see over here the whole thing of Lorki on page 104. A lot of it's taken from the, the Shevet Yehuda. I don't know if they have the... This is by no means a full account of what's going over two years. But you get some of the idea over here. Babaka B'Shav Zohar Ma'pifya Atem Yehudim Amrim Derab Ma'filim Kimi Balsech Hashem Nol Mashiach You know, you guys are scared. And you're saying that uh, Jesus can't be, and the Pope's screaming at them. Oh my goodness. It was tough. And in the middle of it, you know, uh, our hero, Yosef Albo, he's bringing up a point. Is this something the Jews believe in? He said, in order to call something an ichor that Jews believe in, it's got to be something without. This is in Latin also. He said, without which the religion couldn't be conceived. If it's something that the religion could be conceived without it, then it's not an ichor by us. That's a very subtle point. And I remember, I saw the Latin thing, it says, at this, at this point he shot the bull. That's <laughs> what they say. He he became uh, insensible. Uh, all this left a scar on all the Jews. First of all, a physical scar. Um, second of all, there's a certain kill Hashem, because I would not say the Jews did a great job, although historians are arguing over whether they did a good job or not. And we don't have all the records. And I remember Professor Baer said he did do a good job. John Barbonell said they didn't do a good job. They didn't want it. They were forced to participate in all this. And this led our hero to be obsessed with these questions. What are Ikrim, what does the Jewish religion actually believe? We get down to the nitty gritty. And he spent the next uh, 30 years of his life until he died. Uh, preoccupied with these things. He became a rabbi, but by the Sephardim, at that time, in the 15th century, a rabbi involves what we would call a magid. You know, I mean, he does do getting and get, get chubah kedusha and all that stuff. He does. But a lot of it had to do with preaching. And believe you me, the Jews needed stark uh, chizuk. Um, 
a few years after this debate, not long after the debate, the king of Aragon kicked the bucket and so did the Pope. <laughs> that was the good news. In fact, the Pope was deposed and the regular Pope got in in Rome. This Pope was a real schmo. And after the debate, I remember he issued 100 rules against the Jews, new laws. But then he was deposed and the regular Pope, Paul Martin V, was much better and he abolished all those laws. From then on, things started to get better for the Jews. Relatively speaking, of course, there was a train wreck. Half the Jews had converted. Everybody's cousins, brothers, this and that and the other, had been forced to convert. Therefore, the whole family situation was messed up. Beginning of what we call the Muranos, the Anusim, the Conversos, and all that. But I'm leaving that aside. Uh, our hero was like obsessed with these issues. And I would say that he spent the rest of his life as a rabbi, um, preaching, looking to Parsha Shavua, learning Gemara, all through the lenses of this scarring experience that he went. That's my opinion. And eventually, um, and he read up a lot what the Jewish scholars had written. Now, there was the Rambam, the Murabuch, and all the rest of it. But by the time you get to the 1400s, a lot of the ideas in the Murnavukim were not so hatsi-tatsi and persuasive to the uh, Jews in in, um, in Spain. By the way, even Geronimo de Santa Fe threw at the Jews in the debate. See, even the Rambam says that a lot of the laws won't be uh, in time of Mashiach, like we Christians say, because the Rambam says that there will be no more carbonus, uh, you know, from the Murnavukim thing. And, he, and the Jews say it's not true. He just explained the historical background. There will be carbonos. And it got into a whole mess. Okay? It got into a whole mess. Because um, they say, because carbonos not only have rational reasons, but also have mystical reasons. And in general, the, the Zohar was out at this time. And our hero was somewhat into Kabbalah. I understand modern professors are arguing how much. It's like a big deal if you're a student of medieval Jewish philosophy um, at a professional level, which is not my bag. And they really debate over, you know, is Albo writing at two levels or is all what you see is explicit? But that we don't need that for our purposes today. Uh, and the end is that he gave a lot of thought to these ideas and eventually put them together in a safer road called Safer Ikrim. Okay? Uh which, as the title says, he's dealing with what are the ikras of the Jewish religion. Now, the Rambam said there were 13, right, the Animamas. But already many others had disagreed with that. And circumstances had... See, you and me, who cares today? That time, circumstances with the debating of the Christians, all the rest of it, forced the Jews to take these things very, very seriously. And one of the most famous examples is Alba. Now, to tell you the truth... There were others before him, and he took a lot of their stuff. And there are modern people who say he, should, he didn't do with attribution, all the rest of it. But that's not important in the 1400s. Those concepts weren't out there. They don't get it. That time, if you had good material, it doesn't matter who wrote it. The two big people that I know of um, who preceded him and who wrote on these kind of subjects and were great gedolim. So in other words... These were Spanish Jews who were Gedoli Torah, but the, more than Albo, and were also interested in philosophy and science. So that gives the words a lot of weight. Is Chazdei Kreskes and the Tashbates, who I did not long ago. Both of these people are very famous in the Torah world, although, as I said before, Chazdei Kreskes not really so. But those who know, know that he was a gigantic Talmud Chacham. And the Tashbits is famous from the Shal says she was a Tashbits. I don't have to say another word. But both of them were also interested because they lived in the Catholic times. These Ikri questions of Amuna. They both were educated in formal philosophy. And they both were giving a lot of thought to describing Judaism in philosophical terms. Even though, this is important, 
the basis of the religion was not philosophical. So it's very important to understand this. When you get to the Middle Ages particularly, they deal with Jewish philosophers. They're not really philosophers. A real philosopher says, this is what I've worked out, and what I've worked out mentally constitutes the reality. A Jewish philosopher says like this, the Torah stands on its own. Now I'm going to take a shot of it and see if you think philosophically, is that a useful way to approach this? Will that help me, you know, understand the Torah better or keep the mitzvahs better or something like that? If not, not. <laughs> you know? In other words, the, the base of their Yiddishkeit is not their philosophy. Our hero is part of that. He was a from guy, very from guy. He was wrestling with these issues and he comes up very famously with this Sefer Ikrim, in which he copies a lot of what the others said. But he has a lot of his own. One of the most interesting parts of there, in my opinion, that I would share with you today in this podcast, would be the following. The Rambam says there are 13 Ikrim. And if you don't believe in those Ikrim, you go straight to hell. He says you're Marid and Vilomailu, you're not part of Klaistral, blah, blah, blah. That was the Rambam's approach. Already, the time of the Rambab, this was strenuously disputed by Frumis. You hear what I said? By Frumis. Most famously, and this you'll be familiar with, the Rivet says that if someone thinks Hashem could have a goof, they're not kofrim bapakursim, they're just wrong. <laughs> Somebody reads in a Gaza. And it sounds like Hashem you know, has a form of something or other. Or to be perfectly honest, if you're really a Maimonidean, God cannot even have emotions. So, if you believe Hashem hates the sinners, God hates Hitler. So the Rambam will tell you like this. You take that literally, you're a kaifer. Because you understand God is having limitations and emotions and this and the other Derivus says, he's not a kaifer, he just doesn't get it. Yeah, he's not a big philosopher. I get no, Derivus says, I guess, I hear, you know, we don't take that literally either. If the guy does it, he does. It doesn't make you a kaifer. The Tashbits later on moved the ball forward in interesting ways, making the following points. And the, and the Safe Rickham copies that from him. But it's the Tashbits. You know, he wrote Moganovos, you know, and he also wrote that book on Eov. I did this once in a podcast. And the Tashbits lived at the time that we're talking about. But our hero today, the Sefer Ikram, you know, took his stuff and is a better, the Sefer Ikram is a better writer. And he puts it into a K-A-S-S, keep it simple for the stupid, you know. He writes in a much more clear way. But listen closely. I think this is cool. Do you believe that the Mashiach is one of the Ikri and Mun? Oh, yeah. I need Mamin by Munish Lemba. Okay, so what about if a Jew doesn't believe Mishnah? Oh, you're a kaifer. So the Tashmah will say like this. That's not true. You know, in the Gemara, you find, I think Ralph Hillel it was in, in Sanhedrin, it says there's no Mashiach coming. It was Chizkiah. That's over. There's not going to be Mashiach. Now, as you as we all say like this, it's a minority opinion. We don't paskin that way. We don't go with that. But wait a minute. The guy who said it was one of the Amorim, I think. Tanoim Amorim. You can't say he's a Kaifer. You know what I'm saying? So you see, from that, that you can't declare the, 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 the belief in Mashiach to be an Iker of Judaism. It may be true, and I'll say it again. The Tashitz believes it's true. The Sefer Ikram believes it's true. Yes, there'll be a Mashiach, blah, blah, of course. But if somebody doesn't, in and of itself, that doesn't make you trafe. It just means that you have a strange opinion, that's all. Okay? Uh, again, do you believe Yesh Briyas Olam? Oh, sure. Anybody doesn't believe in Briyas Olam, Yesh Me'ayin? Again, you're a Kaifer, you're, you're, you're Apicurus, and this, and that, and the other. Not true. You look in the Medrash, and you'll find those who say that God created the world out of existing matter. Now, that's a minority opinion. Most people don't go the way, and then you can play the game, but where did the matter come from, and all the rest of it. But his point is like this. But if you see a Tana or a Mura say it, you can't say such a belief is trafe. The most you can say is we don't go like that. We don't poskin that like that. We don't follow that opinion. You see, you see my point? Those are things that you find in Sefer Ikrim. 
It's very interesting when he writes it that way, you know. And therefore, he said, before you call something an ichor, you have to think about it through. Now, he has a way that I don't like. It was his very up up of it. And that is that he says they're ikrim, and then they're shrushim of the ikrim, and then they're anofim. So he used the the, the the muscle of a tree. And by the time he's finished, he's got the same thing that the Rambam has. But the ikr part is the part that's called the ikrim or, or those things which without which you couldn't um, conceive of Judaism, which is a very interesting way of approaching it. So, I'll do, again, I'll give you an example. Do you believe in Tchiyas Mesa? Oh, definitely. Do you believe in Mashiach? Oh, definitely. Are they, listen very closely to what I'm saying, are these essential to Judaism? Well, yeah. No, no, they're not. Why do you say that? Listen closely. Suppose I told you that, um, uh, what was I going to say? There's not going to be Tchiyas Mesa. LMI, person does mitzvahs and averis, and then he dies, and then he's judged whether he goes to the Shemaim Bergahim, and that's the end of it. He said, but what about Tchitz Put aside Tchitz You could hear that. You, see, you could have the Jewish religion with that. Your schar and your ownish would be, you know, without Tchitz would be an Olam Anashamas. Right? I mean, frankly, the Rambam at the end kind of ends up at the end end of the process that way. I'm just trying to point out, you could hear the Jewish religion without a Tchiyasim Now, that doesn't mean he's saying it's not. He believes in Tchiyasim Mesim. And the Gemara says, and so on and so forth. The Nevi'im talk about it. But it's not an Ikert, because it's not essential to beliefs in Judaism. You could have the Jewish religion, the Torah and all the rest of it, the keeping of the mitzvahs, and one be Tchiyasim That's the kind of nitty-gritty stuff he gets into. Or Mashiach. Do you believe there'll be a messianic era? The Jews will eventually go back to Israel? You're stuck in Gauls forever. You could totally hear. Suppose I told you it's not going to be Mashiach. Do you simply have to keep the, the mitzvahs in the Gauls? Forever. It could be. It could be. In fact, Ramban in the debate says, I have no problem with that. If that was the case, we would we would be proud of the schar we get, even though there's no light at the end of the tunnel. There's no Mashiach coming. Now the Ramban does believe in the Mashiach, right? But he's saying, if not, we would bear this burden proudly. You keep the tariq mitzvahs, you do with the Ratz Hashem, and let's say it's not a Mashiach out there. You see how you go, when you go down the 13 principles of the Ramban, the way you say it is, is it possible to have, you know, such a concept and still be within the Torah? Uh, so he boils down to three. He knows you couldn't conceive of Judaism without the existence of God. And you couldn't conceive Judaism without Scarva Anish, I think. And you couldn't conceive of Judaism uh, without the idea, what was it again, of um, the eternity of the Torah. Something along those lines, right? The divine origin of the Torah. It's the existence of God, divine origin of the Torah, and Scarva Anish. Believe me, there are those who can take the Chonat, Scarva Anish. Suppose I told you, you don't get reward for doing the mitzvah. You just do it because Hashem wants you to do it. I mean, myself and I, I could hear such a thing. Now, I repeat over and over again, he does believe in Skyrona, she does believe all these other things, but he's refining them down into their philosophical essence. You see? And he's raising these questions in terms of philosophical speculation. And it's kind of interesting. You see? It's, a, it's, a, it's an unusual way. He did this because he wants to debate the Christians and refine what's the essence of Judaism and show how Christianity doesn't match it. Um which he couldn't do in the debate. But now, since he's writing his own book, he could do. As they say, he took a lot of ideas from others, but some of them are on his own. And he has this, he he likes this, involved, like the Ramchal, you know, he likes this involved way, which is to me the opposite of simple. And yet at the same time, the Savior Ikram is written very nicely. Everybody knows. It's written in Hebrew. It's not one of these Arabic things you got to translate. And he is not at all like Chazek Kreskis, Who's like Chida Stuma in, you know, very boring and very hard to put the sentence. I'm serious. You read the Or Hashem, you have, try, you have to go over and over again to, to figure out what the sentence is saying. Never in the Sefer Ikrim. It's reverse. It's written for Hamon Am in the best sense of the word. 
And that is the reason that this book took off more than all these others. Okay? More than all these others. And he writes very nicely. You know, he said, Kalei is never going to give up hope. You know, the the, the Gula is coming. Don't worry about it. Um, and the result is that you have a situation that this book became a beloved text among the Jewish people and was reprinted a million times. It still is. I say again, it's not exactly... The, the style of writing... Not the style of writing. The style of writing is good. The style of argumentation doesn't appeal to me. But nevertheless, it's it's very good. I have the old edition, the Manukan one, naturally, from um, the Maskilim. They put out a set in the 1890s in Odessa. It's been reprinted many times. And, uh, you know, so it's, uh, I always like it for that reason. But I know recently... Feldheim or somebody reprinted. I saw a couple of years ago. It's, it's, it's always coming out. They make him a classic. All the Gedol Yisrael were into it. All the, I mean, the Vilna gone, everybody, to the safe red grim. Well, they hope from each and every one point, it's a different story, but it puts together all these things in a very unusual, interesting way. It's a style. You either like it or you don't like it. I'll give you an example. It comes to mind that I saw many years ago. <laughs> The Sefer Ikram says, how can you daven? Um, am I going to change God's mind? If that happens, then God is not God. Because he's perfect, therefore he can't be... Whatever he, he came up with, he has in mind for you, is the right thing. If you change his mind because you're saying, I'm davening, I'm appealing to you, and all that, sounds like I'm talking to a Melch Basar Badam, and by appealing and begging, he's going to get him to change his mind. How does that work? So he has a classic 15th century approach, which goes like this. I'm davening. As a result of davening, hopefully I'm, I'm improving myself. The very act of davening itself, the hachno and all the rest of it, means I'm improving myself if I daven with kavona. So then I say like this, Hashem, you had the following fate in mind for David Katz A. But now I just davened a good mincha. So now I'm David Katz B. I'm not identical with David Katz A. So whatever you had in mind for for David Katz A, don't do it for me. I'm David Katz B. I'm a changed person. You see? And therefore, Baruch Aleinu Hashem Elkeinu and Rufueinu and Shmakaleinu and all the rest of it. I don't know. I could pick that apart. But it, it, that way, you preserve the concept of a perfect God. It's unchangeable. But you also, you know, valorize the experience of prayer, petitionary prayer. Like I say, either you like it or you don't like it. But um, that's a, a classic example, the old school way of giving these kind of formal argumentations. Now, in the debate, he wasn't able to open his mouth. It's in the book that he wrote, the tape record, he has a chapter in which he has an argument with a, with a priest. Maybe he really did, maybe he didn't. As he calls it, the Chachmi stream or something like that. And he tears the Christianity apart. Okay? Um, this was too much. And, and, and here he did an interesting job. He gave me a whole philosophical attack on, on Judaism. And Vizosi Chubasa he loved, and I busted him back. And he really tore into the guy. There's a chapter there. It's very famous. This was always censored. By that I mean he wrote this in the 1430s, 1440s, which is which is in manuscript. So the the album wrote the Safe Rickard just before the invention of the printing press. He died in 1444, and I think the printing press is 1454. And what's interesting is, when you're writing a book in manuscript form and people make copies, it's a private business. Nobody censors you. It's private. But once you start something as brand new technology called a printing press, so then it can be controlled at the point of the printing press. And in the 1500s, the Catholic Church set up a formal... Um, methodology of doing this. But listen to this. The, the, the 
printing press starts in the 1450s. The Sefer Ikram is one of the first books ever printed by Jews. That's what's being sold in this auction table. It's incredibly valuable in terms of historical artifact. It's from 1486 in Italy. Mind you, the Jews still lived in Spain. This is six years before 1492. The author had been dead only 40 years. So it was a recent book, and the fact that Safe Rickman is being printed before the Shas and all the rest of it shows you plenty of Yidden wanted a copy of this book to be able to slug up and to be able to answer the, the, the Christian neighbors. Or at least, maybe even better than that, to try to get some clarity in the Agatha Hashkafa world, which is out there, that they themselves don't know, because the average Jew, I'm telling you right now, I'm sure most of the listeners to this podcast couldn't answer if they came across a missionary. That's not how we're trained. Most people couldn't do that. And they viewed this book as a big step forward in the right direction. To clarify, by discussing all the nitty-gritty details, to clarify our hashkafas. Like I said before, what exactly is an ikr, or exactly is a tuffle, or as he calls them, shirashim and all the rest of it. Now, I'll tell you again, a lot of this doesn't appeal to me because it's it's, it's classification mania. By the time you're finished in Savior Ikram, he has the same stuff as the Rambam. You know, he just calls on different names. Still got to believe in this. Still got to believe in that. It's 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 you know uh, like I say classification mania. It's not doesn't fall under A. It falls under B or under C. But at the end of the day, it's all the from stuff. But in the discussion form of it, it's I guess mizakeik. You know what I mean? It kind of like clarifies. It's like sifting through. And it's written well. It's written in a nice style. And this book took off. Now, wait a minute. What about this attack on Christianity? So I asked Vitsal Stefanski, I said, what do you, this book, it's, I know that the, once the Catholic Church started with the formal uh, censorship of books, which is after the Council of Trent, which is in the late 1500s, so this was always uh, cut out. Every time you published it, say for Ikrim, you had to omit Perkhafe of Part Gimel, which is the uh, Encounter with Christianity. But this book, which is for sale now, is the first printing ever from Sansino, not the Sansino Press, in the town of Sansino, in Italy, in the 1480s. And I said, was this book censored? You know? And he sent me a picture of it online. So if you're interested, it's really cool. If, if this is something that interests you, you can go into gnozim.com I'm looking at the URL, auction 613, Genozim High Holidays, lot 6 slash 17. And you see pictures in color of this original printing of the Safer Ikrim. And what's cool is I'm looking at the page over there, Mimer Gimel, and it's it's um, censored in an old-fashioned way, which means the Jews published the whole thing, and then somebody came and put, like, black ink over it. Uh, not a fantastic job of censorship. Do you get what I'm saying? You can see past the ink if you really care to. It was modern technology. It'd be a cinch. You could read the original. Now, it's printed. It's printed Hebrew letters, of course. And you can see the blotches. Plus, whoever had this copy, at the bottom of the page, it's totally cool, he copied out by hand the uh, censored material. So Lamaisa, this is how Jews got around the censorship. They blotched it up with the ink, but then the guy, when he bought the copy personally at home, he wrote out all the anti-Christian stuff. So I wouldn't, I'd be very careful of this falling in the hands of the Catholic Church. You'd probably get into trouble. But Jews wanted to have access to this material in case anybody ever had some on the Bikur. Those who are interested today, in the mo- ever since 1876, the modern editions have been printed with the censored stuff restored. So my copy, for example, which is from, which is a reprint from the, I think the Odessa edition, 1890s, has the anti-Christian business. And all the new copies do. It's a different world. 
And may I say, if you have the oats of a kuchen, so one of the things he has it. It's not that long, and it's called Vikuch Yosef Alba Im Chacham Note Three. Note Three. It's on page one eleven to page one fifteen. Yeah, it's one of those classic things. If you're interested, you know I don't know how many people are interested in questions of Vikuchim and all the rest of it, especially from what six seven hundred years ago. But there's a famous episode in Jewish history, and it's a wonderful example. Let's put it this way. The Christians obviously were scared of it. If they said you got to censor it, why don't they say these arguments are so dumb? Let them print it, and you'll see how dumb they are, and that'll show up the Jews for being a bunch of dummies. But the Christians didn't do that, right? The Christians didn't do that. The Christians said, "Oh, uh, this is dangerous. Uh, you know, this has to be suppressed." Shemami uh, that he had a, he had some good points. You know, he punched a couple holes in them. So. All I can say is that there are two levels of the Saver Ikram, the way it's been received. There are the professional professors of philosophy. I'm very serious now. In the academic world, the last 200 years, and they go up and down evaluating how good of a philosophical book it is and arguments and how you compare them to the other guys, Chazay Crescent and so forth. And one set of professors gives it a thumbs up. Another set of professors, the old way, was to give it a thumbs down. But Klal Yisrael, the Hamon Am, has uh, loved this book for 500 years, 600 years. And I mentioned before, Chazay Kreskis, very rarely reprinted. Recently, uh, Fisher, just as a weirdism, made a Manukot copy. That's how I got all of it, you know, in, um, in Yerushalayim, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, whatever. And there was this uh, Flensburg, this weirdo... Rovin Litta, who literally 100, 120 years ago wrote this long pirish on most of Chazek that, But he's a weirdo, you know what I'm saying? You know, it's unusual. And most people never open it. And the Tashbits, I mean, the Shalos and Shubas Tashbits is reprinted often. His other works, the Manganavos and the other things, no, only recently. So these never hit it in Claudius Rome. But to say for Ikram, I wouldn't be surprised if it reprinted 50 times, maybe more. And that means that your great, 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 great grandparents, if any more rabbis or, that, or scholars at that time, definitely had to say for Ikram. It was actually easier to read than the Morna Vukham and this other stuff. It became something associated with um, Frum. Notice, let's put it this way the Morna Vukham is controversial. Right or wrong? Murder controversial. Safer Ikram is not controversial. It's like a from Safer. You know what I mean? I bet you the Satmar Rebbe read it. You know, Safer Ikram is like considered a from Safer. The argumentation is from the late Middle Ages. But as I say before, has a nice writing style. And the, 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 the let's put it this way the author, you know, here's a good one. I remember this. He said, you know, the philosophers like the Rambam, who were elitists, and the Rambam does say this, and so do others, the world exists for those who can perfect themselves intellectually and get what they call their active intellect. What about the rest of us? We're just furniture there. We're mama's furniture to provide, you know, company uh, for, for, for the elite. So most of us never going to get into heaven, only the elite. The rest of us, they're just mishamish them. And the Albo, I remember he said like this, not true. From the what the reason partial. If you're Dovik to Hashem, then you get into heaven too. So you just keep the mitzvahs, you do the easy things, like that kind of you don't have to be an Aristotelian philosopher. You just try to have a relationship with the Bunshalom. This is why the people like the Sefer. Anyway, my time is basically up. But as I said before, this is a fascinating thing. It's in the uh, it's the first edition. That's what he's putting up here. The first edition from um, 1486. So uh, this is really a piece of history, um, if you're interested in this. And as I said before, it has very interesting censorship kind of history with the blocked pages. Um, and... 
I've talked today about a classic of Jewish literature. I'm not sure how well it's known these days in the 21st century, but it's a, 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 a very definite classic um, of Torah literature, of Jewish philosophical literature. And um, anyway, if you're interested, you'll check out the Gnosim catalog. And uh, if you have any questions about it, I'll send you to Stefanski. With that, I wish you all a good day as my time is about to close down. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.